listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You may be seated this morning. I want to add my welcome to Marla's. My name is Mark and I'm one of the leaders here at the White House campus of Bethel Bible Church, and listen, if it's your first or maybe second time uh, with us, man, we are so glad you're here. Uh, if you don't have lunch plans, we want to invite you to stay and have lunch with us as we typically do on the first Sunday of each month, and we hope that you will. I want to invite you in your Bibles to Galatians once again. We will make it to the end of chapter 1 today, I promise, um, but to begin interruptions. Interruptions are so much a very part of life. Some of them are welcomed, and some of them are not so welcomed. Some of them may be welcomed. It's like you're at that party, and that Star Trek geek has cornered you and wants to teach you to speak Klingon, and you are just given every signal you can for someone to interrupt you because you need a break. Or, this actually happened to me, you hear of a great restaurant opening up. I mean, you can't wait, and you've even skipped lunch that day, and I mean, you know, your stomach's starting to eat your liver, I mean, you're that hungry, and you just can't wait. You pull up to the door, something seems a little off, and there's a sign that says, sorry, we're out of water. And it just interrupts everything that you had planned, and at that point, nothing else can do. It doesn't matter what it is. It's not going to fulfill that. And thinking back over my life, I've got many, many interruptions that have happened. And if you don't know this, um, two kinds of people. Um, there are uh, people, people. You know, they see something, they're doing something. It doesn't matter what it does. Somebody walks by and they're just glad there's somebody there. It doesn't matter what they're doing. And they enjoy the interruption of people and they don't even see it as an interruption of all. Well, then there are task people. I won't tell you which one I am. And um, we have to work really hard not to see people as an interruption. We know that, but deep down, we, we have to really work at it. But I would venture to say that you've probably had a few interruptions in your life. Things that you had planned, all of a sudden something's different, something changes. Some of them were perhaps welcomed and others not so much. But there are interruptions that will totally change your life. Some are welcomed, some are not so much. Some of those interruptions, man, they have brought happiness and, and joy to your life. And you're so thankful that that happened that you didn't plan on. But other times, things that happened that you didn't plan on, they have brought you pain and frustration and maybe even misery. Well, this morning, we're going to look at three interruptions in the life of some people. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. Um, we'll start about verse 15 that we covered last week. We'll go through 24 quickly, but also mark Acts 9. And we're going to kind of get a little bit of history into this morning of Paul. So as you're finding there, just to remind us, Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia. He had gone through that region and planted churches, but not long after he leaves, some false teachers come in. 
They come in after Paul and they're trying to persuade the, the people in Galatia that yes, Jesus, yes, of course Jesus, but you also need to follow the laws of the Jewish faith, such as eating or not eating things. Your clothes are going to need to change, but especially the Abrahamic covenant in circumcision. But Paul will argue, even to his final breath, that if you take away or you add anything to the gospel, you've created a false gospel. So these Jewish teachers are trying to go in, and they're crafty, they're smart, they're trying to discredit Paul as an apostle, as a leader, because they know if they can do that, then they discredit the message that Paul is preaching, that salvation is through grace alone, in faith alone, through Christ alone. So here we are, Galatians chapter 1. I'll read verses 15 through the end of the chapter. It says, But when he had set me apart before I was born, Paul knows that God called him. He called me, not by my works, but Paul says, by his grace. And he was pleased to reveal his son to me. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, to whom were the apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and I returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter, and I remained with him for 15 days. But I saw no one of the other apostles except James, the brother of uh, the Lord. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They are only hearing it said. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And over and over again, Paul is showing that the message that he received is not a man-made message like those false teachers. But his was a direct revelation from the Lord himself. So I thought it'd be helpful this morning to look at exactly what happened. What is Paul referring to? And we find this in the book of Acts chapter 9. So if you'll flip over there, it's really interesting that for the first eight chapters, you almost forget that Luke is writing this because for the first eight chapters, it's about the apostles and all the things that are happening there. Then for the last 20 chapters, it mainly focuses on Paul. In fact, we get his conversion three times in the book of Acts. So we'll go to Acts 9. Find my way there. Acts chapter 9. We'll pick up where he's going to give an account of his conversion and his calling. So beginning chapter 9 verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
So Saul has been very successful in driving Christians from Jerusalem. Yet, man, Paul's not satisfied in the least. In fact, Paul is obsessed with the idea of stamping out Christianity wherever it seems to pop up. So he goes to the high priest. He, he goes to the high priest and he asks permission or authority to take his mission to Damascus. Now, this is probably happening in one of two ways. Either some Christians have fled from Jerusalem and they have planted in Damascus. or Perhaps the gospel has made its way there and there are now some Jewish converts. So either way, Paul hears this and he goes to Damascus. So Paul's plan is to travel to Damascus and to bring these so-called Christians back to Jerusalem to throw them in jail, and if they will not uh, turn away, if they will not renounce their new beliefs, then death should come to them. And Paul says he's in favor. So here's Saul. Saul has passion. We've seen it week after week. He was zealous more than anyone. He has a plan. He has a plan for stomping out Christianity. And now he's got that last leg, that last piece. He now has the power. But sometimes, sometimes God has other plans. Look at verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So he's traveling with a group of men, probably temple guards. And so I want to show you a picture. So he's in Jerusalem, and he's going to travel about 125 miles to Damascus. Probably took them about a week to get there. Perhaps he looks up and he is, he's about to get there. Maybe he can begin to see the walls around Damascus. When all of a sudden there's an interruption into Saul's life and the plans he had. When suddenly it says a light, but not just any light, a light straight from the throne room of God shines on him. Look at what happens in 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now think about that. You're traveling. All of a sudden this light is so blinding happens. And then the light speaks to you by name. And Saul hears it coming through this light. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I can't imagine what Saul must have been thinking. Maybe he thought this light was a voice of someone he had thrown into jail. Or perhaps he thought maybe it was the voice of Stephen that he watched get stoned, that he held their coats, and it says that Saul approved. This had to have seemed so odd to Saul because here's what happened. Saul doesn't believe he is persecuting anyone unjustly. Paul is all in. He doesn't see why in the world this is wrong. And that is the danger of being self-righteous. Because a self-righteous person never sees themselves in the wrong. So Saul, he asked for this person to identify himself. Look at verse 5. And he said, Who are you, Lord? Now, there's a lot of controversy about what is happening here. What does Paul believe Who is he talking to? And so this word Lord in the Greek, it means Kyrie. 
And it could mean master, or it could also be used to address someone as sir. Now, some believe that in some way, Saul knows that he is talking to Jesus because he uses the word Lord. I don't believe that is who Saul is talking to. I believe he hears his voice, and I believe he thinks it's something supernatural. And after all, I mean, it's the light speaking to him. This probably didn't happen every day. But in grace, the Lord identifies himself to Saul. Look at the last part of 5. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, I hope you can feel the, the, the comfort and the encouragement that is found in these words because men and women who are following Jesus are being thrown into jail and some even martyred because of these zealot, zealot Jews like Saul. But right here, Jesus doesn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting them? Leave, leave them alone. Now he looks at Saul and he says, why are you persecuting me? This shows us that how close the, the union is between Christ and his followers. It shows us how close the union is for you if you are in Christ. Just listen to a couple of other places we see this in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Romans 6 he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by the baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. There is this union that happens that Jesus recognizes but now the instructions that come after the interpretation. Look at verse 6 through 8. But rise, Saul. He says, get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him, those temple guards with him, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and all those his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, and they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Now Saul, he is, he is storming the roads, determined to capture and imprison Christians. But here we find him now being led by the hand like a child into Damascus. Look at verse 9. And for three days... Three days he was without sight, neither did he eat nor drink. So Paul, or Saul spends three days blinded, fasting, praying. And I think that is where the conversion of Saul happens. You see, Saul, he is forced to come to the painful reassessment of his life. Everything he thought was important, his great learning, his proud position as a Pharisee, his leadership in defending Jewish orthodoxy had all been swept away. Whatever chance Saul had for making a name for himself is now gone. He was utterly helpless. 
Nothing he could do. He couldn't see. He couldn't feed himself. All he could do was sit there in blindness and to pray and fast. But in that time, Jesus is there and help is just around the corner. Look at verses 10 through 12. Now there was a disciple, a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias to come in and to lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, that is God being very specific about where to go to. He gives you the street, the house, who owns it. You'll find a man where he's from and exactly what he's doing. Now, don't you wish God would be that specific with you all the time? To know, you know everything that he wants you to do? And I tell you, I love Ananias' response. Look at verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here now he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I mean, Ananias, he's like, but, but wait, hold on, Lord. Now, I've heard about this man, and not just from one person. There are many that are coming and talking about this man. And listen, Lord, I don't know if you realize, but he's bad news. In fact, he wants to take all of the Christians, wants to round them up, throw them into jail, make them stand on trial. Are you sure that's what you want me to do? I think we're often like that. I mean, I, th I think we can be eager to obey the Lord until we learn that His will isn't exactly what we'd expected. But God's gracious. God is gracious even to Ananias' hesitation. Look at what he says in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much suffer that he must do for my sake of my name. So Ananias departed and he entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled. With the Holy Spirit. So Ananias, he is obedient and he goes to Saul and he lays his hands on him and he calls him brother. Now don't miss that. This was a term that was used among fellow believers. And I believe this is the first recorded time that Saul is identified as a Christian. And what we see is that Ananias' perceptions of Paul, he've been utterly shattered. And his distaste for this man, he has now turned it to love for him. And listen, only the gospel can make that kind of reconciliation that can turn enemies into brothers. And listen, I know there is all kinds of strife in the nation that we live in, especially among the races of people. But until the only hope for reconciliation is the gospel. 
That's the only equalizer. That's the only thing that can bring reconciliation to people. So watch the results in verse 18. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. So Paul, I mean, Saul begins to proclaim boldly the message that he had so desperately tried to silence. And now we find him. We find that man Saul. He goes from being a Jew that is chasing down Christians to be a Christian that is actually now chased himself. But what Luke doesn't take time to cover is that Saul actually leaves Damascus for a small period of time. In fact, we just read in Galatians, it says he goes to Arabia, which is kind of south and then east of Damascus. You find in Galatians 1.21. And we don't know exactly where Saul disappears to, and exactly exactly how long, but we know that he goes away for a while. But it's interesting that it's likely that Saul traveled down to Arabia and eventually made his way to Mount Sinai. That he could have gone to Mount Sinai. Think about this. The man that was so passionate about the law, and all of a sudden, everything changes. He could have went right back to the place where the law was given to Moses, trying to wrap his mind around this interruption that had happened to him. So now Saul, he goes back to Damascus, and look at what happens in 21. And all who heard him, they were amazed. And he said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and on those who called upon his name? And has he not yet come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the uh, chief priest? But Saul increased more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching by the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples, those same disciples that Saul came to destroy, they took him by night, and they let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I mean, the same people that Saul went to destroy, God now uses to save his life. I think Jesus was right when he said, Greater love has no one that he would lay down his life for his friends. And just think about that. Saul comes as an utter enemy. And soon, because of the gospel, they lay their lives down to save his. So then Saul, he travels back to Jerusalem, but he doesn't stay long. Look at verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the other disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, oh, that great encourager Barnabas, 
He took him and he brought him to the apostles and he declared on to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So the Lord uses Ananias mightily in the life of Saul and now Barnabas. See, the disciples were afraid of Saul. They thought maybe this was a trap. But Barnabas, he sticks his neck out there for Saul. Barnabas tells him of Paul's conversion and how he's now preaching that same message. I think Barnabas, I think think he could sense God's call on this man Saul. But once again, Saul's in danger. Look at verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenist. But they, they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him off to Tarsus. So when they heard of the plot to kill this man, they took him to the port of Caesarea. And let me show you it again. So he goes up to Damascus. Perhaps he goes down to Arabia, making his way to Mount Sinai. He goes back to Damascus, to Jerusalem. They take him to Caesarea, and he goes back to Tarsus. It's interesting that I'd often thought, I don't know, you kind of put things together, that when the, the road of Damascus experience and call happened on Saul, I thought, okay, then man, Saul just then tore out across the West planting churches. But that's not what we see at all. In fact, three years after his experience, he finds himself back in the same town he's from. In fact, Acts goes on to tell us that Saul spent probably around 12 to 14 years in Tarsus. And during this time, we really don't know what Paul is doing. In fact, it says that he is unknown to the churches in Judea. So I believe, I believe Saul goes back to what he knows. I believe he goes back to Tarsus, and I believe he starts making tents again. I mean, Tarsus, it was the home of the largest school and the largest library in the world. Perhaps maybe he went to read and to study, once again trying to make sense of all that had happened to him. But I do believe, I do believe he shared his experience in the faith in Jesus with anyone that would even give him the time of day. But Paul is now living in absolute obscurity. No one knows who this man is. So for time's sake, let me just kind of recap really what happens to bring us all the way back to where we are in Galatians. So for 12, 14 years, Saul's quietly living his life in Tarsus. Think about that, for 12 to 14 years, and no one hears from this man Saul. He's living in absolute obscurity, unknown to virtually everyone. But in Acts 10, we go back and we hear of Cephas or Peter. Peter meets a man named Cornelius, and Cornelius has a vision. In this vision, it it tells him to go and find this man named Peter. Now, Cornelius, he was a God-fearing religious man. He gave his tithes, and through their meeting, Cornelius hears the gospel, and he responds in faith. And what we see is the very first Gentile come to faith. The gospel, as God had said, is going to now go to the world. So the church in Jerusalem, they they send someone up to Antioch to see what is going on because all of a sudden these Gentiles are coming to faith and the Holy Spirit is being poured out. And so they call upon Barnabas. They said, Barnabas, 
go and see if this is really happening. So Barnabas goes. He can't believe his eyes. He's seeing these Gentiles come to faith, the Holy Spirit being poured out on them. So the church in Jerusalem, they, they come together because they're trying to once again figure this out. That How can a Gentile come to faith? I'm sure there were some heated discussions. So no one knows what to do. But Barnabas, in Acts 11.29, Barnabas says, you know what? I know what to do. And Barnabas leaves and he goes and he gets Saul. And he brings him back to Antioch. He says, Saul, Saul's going to know what to do. And this is why Paul is so passionate about the gospel and that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and not in works. Paul knows what it is like to live your life and to work hard for the Lord, but then to realize that all your greatest works can never take care of your sins and that your sins are much greater than your best works. And then Paul begins taking the gospel further and further west. So I want you to see this morning three interruptions and three principles. So we have the interruption of Ananias. In Ananias, you see this interruption, but here's the principle. God, he may call you to something that is totally irrational and maybe even dangerous. But there is joy through obedience. And we see Barnabas. Barnabas' interruption in his principle is that God may give you the glimpse, may give you a small glimpse into what he's doing in someone else's life. And I don't know if you've ever done that or ever experienced that, but you can just sense God has got his hand on someone. I can remember a young seventh grader named Jarrett. He's his teacher. I remember thinking, God's going to do something with that young man. But when you find someone like that, God may want you to come alongside them to encourage that calling in their life. Well, then you got Saul. Saul's interruption of principles that God, he may call you to obscurity and discouragement and even disappointment. I mean, think about it. He comes to faith, and within three years, he's had to run for his life. But Saul's life is interrupted by the Lord. But God was always preparing him. So what seems like, what seems like an interruption to you is never an interruption to the Lord. Every single interruption is totally meaningful in our lives. There are only interruptions to us because we can't see the future. And as believers, we must trust that God knows all, sees all, controls all, and has our best interest in mind. In fact, God is using every single moment in your life, interruptions and all, for your eternal glory. Every single one of them. In fact, there is not a single moment that God is ever going to waste. So He is using every single moment of your life, interruptions and all, for your glory and also for your blessing. And so this morning... As we've been walking through this incredible book of Galatians, next week we will make it into chapter 2. But I want us to think about this morning that, man, there's been a lot of interruptions probably in all of our lives. 
And there's a, a right way and a wrong way. We can respond to that. And listen, hopefully there's been some that, that you've responded correctly and you turn around and you praise God for it. But I know there's times, and listen, I have one that we have totally blown it. And the great news is that there is grace in all of that. So this morning, I want us to continue in our worship to reflecting upon that grace that God gives us. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask one of our elders, Paul Keel, to come and to lead us in communion. Our gracious and heavenly Father, I praise you this morning that there are no interruptions in your plan for us. Every single thing that happens in our life runs through your perfect will. And what may seem like an interruption to us is never to you. And I pray that when those times come, that you would give us the grace to respond correctly. And so this morning, as we continue in our worship of thinking and focusing upon that moment that grace entered the world through your son, Jesus. And that, Father, not a single moment of our lives are wasted. That you are doing something in us for our glory and our blessing through your son, Jesus, that we are united with. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.